In this episode of the Trophy Dash podcast, I get to interview legendary coach Randy Reisinger. Randy and his brother Steve created a dynasty in Little 500 with a team called Delta Chi. We go through every year of the race that they won. They won seven out of 10 years. And we break it down. We talk about how they got started and how they innovated the race. This is a great episode of Trophy Dash. You're going to love it. And by the way, Trophy Dash is sponsored by Inkwell Cafe, Bloomington's best coffee house. If you're in town, the Little 500, stop by Inkwell Cafe and have breakfast and some coffee. Now the episode. Um, today I get the honor, the privilege to speak to Coach Randy Reisinger. Hi, Randy. Hi, Jim. I can't see the top of your head. Now I can. Oh, yeah, let me get a little lower. Uh, yeah. Look, um, it's an honor to talk to you. When I first joined the Cutters in Little Five, uh, was, was the fall of 1990, right? And a big draw was the stories, the people, the personalities, uh, and this history of the event and the history of the Delta Chi team. And uh, I remember hearing about you and your brother, Steve, and just just being kind of mind blown at the levels of complexity and the thought and attention and love that went into this bike race. Uh, that was the fall of 1990. Where, where were you in the fall of 1990? Uh, good question. Let's see. I was, I was in California, I guess, uh, by then, because I moved out there in 83. Okay. Um, so yeah, and and those were some years that I missed the race of uh, about six or seven years that I missed the race. So that's where I was about then. And were you you're working in California? I was working in California. I had um, I had I left Apple in about eighty five. Um, so I was doing a lot of consulting in Silicon Valley with large tech companies. The early days of Apple, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I worked for Apple uh, from 80 to 85. And so uh, after Apple, I, I was doing consulting um, in Silicon Valley, technology consulting. Uh, you, you once made a comment about Little Five is all about information and gathering information and using information. Uh, I'm guessing what you learned at Little Five, you were able to apply to those careers. Well, yeah, I learned a lot of things in Little Five that I applied to careers uh, that might have been one of them. But, uh, you know, when when we started out, we, you know, Delta Chi was a, a very small fraternity, about 24 people, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, having trouble sort of keeping the house together financially. Uh, and Steve was president of the house and he, uh, my brother, Steve, and um he, you know, decided that the way to a uh, way for the house to grow and become, you know, uh, less financially stressed <laughs> was uh, was to win little five. He said this event is too big and important on campus to not do well in. What what year was that, Randy? About um, that was about that comment was probably about sixty eight. Uh, 1968 and, and so what was going on little five around then like who were the top teams like was it a big event was it growing it was 
it was uh, about half of the size uh, of event that it later would become. Uh, so it was um, it was it was pretty much just a campus event. Uh, people didn't really come in from all around to to see the thing, and you, you didn't see that many fans or people there. I mean, it was probably attendance was I would guess six or eight thousand. So it was a big event on campus, but it was not the event that it became later. And and so coming from this small fraternity that was in kind of dire straits um, and with the idea of making a presence, uh, building a brand for Delta Chi around the bike race, essentially. Um, The the first sort of issues were, well, you know, how do we go about this? And I had, you know, played some sports in high school and I think Steve assumed that I would be a good rider or something. Uh, but in the interim, um, Steve met Eddie Van Guys uh, through an alumnus in uh, Evanston, Illinois. And um, we decided, well, you know, we, we need more people like Eddie, not like me, for <laughs> riders. Uh, but I was still sort of interested in this challenge of how do we win the race? And... Uh, uh, once Eddie came to campus, uh, he and I became good friends and, and, you know, I just started learning a lot of stuff from him. He taught us everything in those early days. I, I knew nothing about um, racing little five or cycling at that point. <laughs> and, uh, and Eddie started us down the road of, uh, well, here's what you need to know. And uh, well, let, let me go back to Ted. When Steve had the idea of like, let's use little five to boost the fraternity. Yeah. People jump on board. Was that a crazy idea? What was the perception of that? So the, the, the way it went was he, he asked me to go for a walk with him and we walked over to the little five stadium and he pointed to the track and the seats and so forth and, and uh, kind of described, you know, what the race was and so forth. Um, and he said that it was too important on campus not to, you know, do well. And, and so he kind of got me uh, charged up about it. And then Eddie was the second person that got charged up about it because Eddie came down when he was a senior and watched the race. Okay. And, and in the bike races, Eddie was in the largest crowd he'd raced in front of was like maybe 2000 people. Yeah. And uh, when he saw this, he, he just uh, thought, I got to do this, right? It, it, was, it was exciting to him. How does Eddie just randomly come to Little Five? Like, do you guys kind of court him? Do you invite him? Well, uh, a banker in Evanston uh, knew of Eddie, and he was a Delta Chi uh, alumnus, and he called Steve and told him about Eddie. And then Steve invited Eddie down, contacted him, invited him down for Little Five Hundred. And that was Eddie's senior year, so that was 1968. Um, and I had watched uh, the previous year's race, 67, I think, was the first race that I watched. Um, and it just looked totally confusing to me, right? <laughs> if you're if the first time you watch the race, it's very, very hard to make sense of. Right. 
so when Eddie was there, that was the second race that I got to watch and uh, things were starting to make a little more sense, but it still seemed pretty random, pretty chaotic. Um, you watched the race with Eddie, you sit in the sands together. Yeah, I'm pretty, yeah, we did. Mm -hmm. You guys became uh, kind of instant friends. Yeah, really. So because, uh, uh, he would tell us stuff about cycling and I was fascinated with, you know, some of the details that I never would have imagined. Right. Uh, so yeah, we were, we were tight initially right from the start, I should say. And, uh, such a great storyteller. <laughs> Yeah. And he, he, he was like, so for quite some time, you, the question you asked, how, how did it gain traction for quite some time? It was just the three of us and Eddie sort of put together a team and, and he was, even though there was a designated coach, Eddie was doing more coaching than uh, because he knew more about what was going on than the rest of us did. Yeah. And, uh, and that first year, I think we finished uh, the first year he rode, uh, we finished, I believe, 10th yeah and then um eddie eddie made a, has made a comment in the past that he, he really kind of felt the pressure of having to be a rider be a coach get this team going like the weight of delta kai was on his shoulders yes and and i wasn't as involved in that first year or two as i became later uh but it at you know he would uh he would ask me to kind of coach him in several different ways, you know, uh, first to coach him and then to coach the team and so on. Uh, because, you know, he knew I had the interest, I was listening to him and so on. And, and, and he, the pressure that you mentioned was what, uh, what he wanted to get rid of. He wanted to be more focused on writing. Mm -hmm. And that was actually something that, that we learned early on was, uh, let's get all this other stuff out of the way. The, the, the preparation of meals, the uh, mechanicals, you know, taking care of the bikes, all this other stuff. Let's get that out of the way. So riders can just ride. That was a big innovation for the time. Probably. It was a big innovation, but it was also the beginning of an organization. Mm. We, we sort of got to the point where if we're going to do that, we have to have mechanics, we have to have cooks, we have to have coaches, we have to have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so what we built around Eddie was an organization. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, you know, it evolved over years, not, it didn't happen instantly. But uh, that we later determined was really important uh, to, to the successes that we would later have. How did Eddie find teammates? Like Mark Cassidy joins the team shortly after. Like, how does how do they go about finding extra more riders for the team? Yeah, so Eddie, you know, rode uh, amateur races around the country, and he would go and he would he would talk to different riders, uh, people that he knew. He knew Mark Cassidy and liked him, and he Mark was a great guy, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so he he enlisted him, you know, to. Uh, to come join the team. And, and usually the only thing it took to, to get guys excited about coming was letting them know how kind of, how many fans there were at the race. And, you know, these were all college age people typically. And, and um, you know, there were some very attractive uh, young ladies uh, in the stand and so forth. And, and that sort of thing attracted, uh, you know, high school seniors and, and riders that any knew. So uh, 
in those first couple of years, uh, Eddie was kind of responsible for putting the team together. Mm-hmm. You know, as time passed, uh, Steve and I, my brother Steve and I, would would travel around the country to go to some of these races. You know, Eddie would say, "Hey, there's a race in Kenosha on Thursday, or there's a race uh, here or there on Saturday, or something." And so we would drive and go to these races and and meet riders and uh in the process that was one of the ways that we picked up more of the riders later on but eddie was pretty i mean you know he, he was good at spreading the word and, and uh how, did, how did you explain little five to these guys in wisconsin like and did they think you're crazy or did they get it um well uh, probably a lot of them thought we were crazy because uh that wasn't a race that was really on the map uh, among amateur riders in those days, but a few of them, you know, got it or were interested enough to come check it out. And, and, um, and that was enough to build teams, you know, you only needed four riders for a team. So, um, if you talk to 12 people, you'd probably find four riders, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was a tough slog in those days, uh, when Mark Cassidy joined the team, uh, that was a pretty good team and they finished second. Um, and, and, you know, the house was all excited when we finished 10th because the house hadn't participated in the race, probably three of the four preceding years, something like that. And so to get a 10th, well, finished in the top 10, that's great, you know, but at some point we, we came to the conclusion that, you know, nobody remembers who finished second, third, fourth, fifth. They remember who wins. So it was our goal at, at some point to, to win the race. And so um, those next years while Eddie was there were, um, were learning years for us and, and years where we developed the organization. And, uh, and it was the, by the time Eddie was a senior, we put sort of everything we had into uh, the team and we had clearly the strongest team out there, uh, but we felt short. We came in second. You at 72, you collected Steve Dayton, got him from Purdue to come down. Yes. And he was reigning national champion at the time. So not a bad rider. And a rider named Steve Schaefer also joins the team. And Steve Schaefer had ridden little five, uh, twice or three times before. So, uh, yeah, something like that, and and was a, a good little five rider. He he didn't uh, race uh, outside of uh, little five, but he was a very good little five rider. And this is a story I know well. Uh, Eddie's last year, really strong team, and you guys had a, a strategy that were, was to play out over two hundred laps, where you would start to really fatigue the other teams and then pull away at the end. And then the rains come in, a big storm comes in. The race gets postponed to the next day. And throughout the night, Eddie gets sick. Eddie, yeah. He's up all night vomiting. He's got a fever. He's not the same guy. Right. He's not able to finish the race. And then the, uh, Delta Chi gets second his last year. Well, uh, you know, I went to him in the pits uh, with about, uh, I don't know, 15 laps to go or so. And I asked him, how are you feeling? Do you, you want to do this sprint? And, and he, he said, I don't feel up to it, you know, uh, put Steve Dayton on. And so we, we made that happen. And, and, uh, and Steve had, uh, uh, you know, a way of sprinting 
that was uh, that worked very well in the races outside of level five, where he would drop pretty far back in the pack and wind up a big gear and come hauling around faster than people could react to and take off the front. And um, and that was not something we were used to doing in little five, <laughs> number one. But, yeah. and, it, and it wasn't sort of the way we had, had talked about finishing the race. But, um, and so it, it, he was about 33rd when the white flag dropped and he finished second. So he passed, you know, 32 teams or 31 teams uh, on, in that last lap which is just amazing. We had some footage of that. Uh, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's amazing to watch, mm -hmm. uh, but we finished second and, um, and that's the way that went. What was really interesting, you know, I was just devastated after that race because this was the race that we were aiming for. It was Eddie's senior year. It was all this stuff. Right. And we came up short and, um, it took about two or three weeks of, you know, soul searching and, and reviewing the race mentally and so forth to figure out that we made quite a few mistakes during that race. I think I counted like 10 or 12 mistakes that we made and finally came to the conclusion we really didn't deserve to win if we made that many mistakes. And so we vowed to, you know, learn from that and, and go forward. Um, of course, Eddie wasn't with us going forward because he was a senior. He'd been, you know, he'd ridden his four races and he didn't have eligibility anymore. Um, but there were some interesting things that came out of that, one of which was that uh, we, we didn't have Eddie to ask anymore, oh, what do we do in this situation? So we had to start thinking for ourselves. Um, and we had to think about uh, the team over longevity. So we lost, uh, I think, uh, either three or four of those riders. We had to basically build a new team from scratch. Mm -hmm. and, um, and of course, we had contacted various riders and so forth. Um, but uh, we were extremely fortunate in that, uh, that uh, Wayne Stetna, who had just returned from the Olympics, uh, decided to come to IU and ride for Delta Chi. And the interesting thing was um, some somebody interviewed Wayne as he got off the plane in Indianapolis, and he mentioned during that interview that's what he was going to do. And Steve and I were sitting at a football game, IU football game, and they announced that over the loudspeaker. Oh, wow. That was the first we knew of it. <laughs> so Had you already communicate with Wayne like touch yeah we'd been talking to Wayne for a year or two um but uh and, and you know, we were hoping he would come but he wouldn't make any commitments before uh the Olympics because he every everything in his mind was focused on the Olympics and and you know he didn't want to make decisions beyond that he wanted to focus on the Olympics so I'm sure that recharged you and Steve and the whole team the Definitely. And we were sitting next to each other at the football game. We looked at each other with, with shock and surprise <laughs> in our faces and thought, okay, that's going to be helpful. you know. And it, of course, was a big help. How do you teach a guy like Wayne, who's used to doing these long road races by himself, to understand in, uh, the nuances of Little Five and to work with a team? Uh, so there there are really two parts to that question. One is the nuances. And, and Wayne was uh, 
a very intelligent guy, very quick study. And we pretty much just had to mention those things once and he'd get it. The other part of that was that Wayne was a bike racer and he expected to be continuing his bike racing. He, you know, little five was not his only race. Mm -hmm. And so Steve was really good at, at, you know, determining first and then, uh, uh, we talked it over and he, he kind of had a strategy. He says, you know, Wayne is going to be hard to deal with uh, if we don't teach him that this is a very special race to him. He races two or three races a week. It's just another race. Each of those races, is just another race, but we have to let him know that this is a special race. So we had to talk to him about the fact that uh, this race occurs once a year. And if you don't win it, you've got a whole year to think about how painful it was that you didn't win uh, and, and so forth. And um, that was uh, a real key part in, in working with, Rain, with Wayne. The second key part was we had to be uh, fairly tolerant of uh, letting him go and race some of these other races because, after all, that was what he did, right? Right. And so, uh, you, you know, like when when he told us he didn't want to go to Qualls uh, because he was going to be racing someplace that weekend. Uh, as a coach, you know, your first reaction is, well, you got to go to Qualls, you know. But, you know, we stepped back and we thought about it and we go, uh, you know, we, I think we got four guys that can qualify. So uh, that's the important part. Let's let Wayne do his thing. Yeah, so we, we, we had to, there was some give and take there from, you know. You guys qualified fifth that year, 73, without Wayne. Yes, without Wayne, right. Uh, who was the competition? Around? Do you remember who you guys were mainly competing against? Uh, well, it was a little bit different each year, but, but Fiji's were always uh, strong. Uh, ATOs were only always strong. Um, uh, sometimes SAEs, um, and of course, probably the most dominant during that period, uh, or the period prior to that, was Phi Size. So we always had to watch the Phi Size because we knew they could win at any any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, those were probably the most dominant teams. What kind of race strategy, if you recall, did you guys have in seven seventy three with Wayne starting the race? Well, we had to. Uh, we had to figure out, you know, how to have him on the bike most of the race uh, because he had the capability to do that. And because uh, if Wayne was on the bike, other teams would be hesitant to do, you know, to, to try and take off or, you know, mess with us. And neutralize the race if he's on there. Yeah. So we, um, we did a lot of work on uh, how to, build the race around Wayne. And um, what, what happened was early in the race, we had a wreck, Wayne went down and we had him uh, pretty well prepped. You talked about the nuances and so forth of, you know, if you have a wreck, you get on your bike, you take off and then you check your, your bike and your body. You know? <laughs> in that order. And, and so it was, uh, those were things we drilled into the riders. Um, because in those days, um, if you got in a wreck, sometimes a, 
an official on the side of the track would just pull you over and talk to you and check out to see how you were and that sort of thing. And, you know, you can lose a lap pretty quickly like that. So we had to get up and get going before an official could grab you. <laughs> and, uh, and then as soon as you got going, you had to check to see if you were injured or the bike was injured and, and so on. How far back was he after the crash? Half lap? He was um, about eight tenths of a lap down. Uh, and uh, we were just about to be lapped when he got his bike untangled and, you know, was able to get on and go. Um, and so um, he knew what his job was. He had to catch back up, right? And, and uh, so I didn't have to communicate all that much with him. Uh, but uh, but he made up uh, the the lost ground by himself pretty much. He 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 was uh, he pretty much tagged the back of the pack before he made an exchange. And Jim Kirkwood, uh, one of our rivals, uh, walked down to the pit and and said, "Randy, if I hadn't seen that with my own eyes, I would never have believed it." And uh, but. Um, I was actually on his last, about his, his, about his last lap. Um, I noticed that he didn't look at the pit and it was a cardinal rule that anytime you came around the pit, you looked in the pit for signals and get, got eye contact and so forth. And he didn't look this time. And I was about to yell at him uh, about his, uh, you know, that he should, you know, keep his eyes on the pit when I noticed that his face was really ashen white. <laughs> and uh, that told me that he was in deep oxygen debt. Um, and uh, I was just uh, kind of mortified about, you know, can we get him all the way around 35, six seconds around the track to get it doing an exchange before he passes out. And so uh, while everybody else was cheering and so forth, I was just uh, really shocked. What was so, like, uh, like when you came off the bike and this exhausted, I'm sure. Well, yeah, but the first thing that happened was uh, just past our pit on the straightaway, he caught a wheel. And so he was able to... Uh, take a couple of breaths, get a little oxygen in his bloodstream and, and do a little, you know, uh, wheel of a straggler. But uh, that that sort of got him prepped such that uh, I made sure that there was a, a rider ready for the exchange, even though none of us either, I hadn't given him a signal to exchange. He hadn't given us a signal. I just, it's time. <laughs> let's, get, let's make sure we're ready and try to, and, and we wave him in and he came in. So, uh, even in, in triumphant moments, <laughs> sometimes there are these uh, issues that pop up that cause you concern. Wayne ends up riding like 140 laps of that race. And yeah. Uh, is the finish close or is it a sprint finish? Remind me how it went down. Um, we went on to get a lap. After that, after we caught the pack, uh, we went on to uh, get a lap on the field. Mm. And um, uh, with that lap on the field, the second place team uh, was uh, Kappa Sigs, 
and they walked down and said, uh, do, you, do you mind if we sit your wheel on your last lap? Uh, and we said, they were friends and we said, no, that's fine. You know, so we finished about a lap and a half ahead and, and Kirkwood on the wheel then was, and that made meant him, he was a half lap up. Um, and so they finished second. It was the only race that I can think of where we determined both the first and second place finishes. There you go. Uh, so Delta Chi gets their first victory. Uh, you and Steve, the mission is complete. You won the race. What's that feeling like for everybody? Well, it was uh, it was just totally exhilarating. You know, uh, it it was um, it was the best feeling ever, right? And uh, we run out on the on the infield and celebrate and do all this stuff. And and this is something we've been working hard for for five years, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally accomplished it. So it was a, it was a real high point. Um, what was interesting to me uh, and quite telling was we, we were confident now that we could, you know, continue to build teams and, and sort of keep the, the uh, process rolling uh, because we'd been through, two, this was our, our sort of second team working with but what was interesting to me when we won the second race the following year, I didn't have those same feelings of elation. Hmm. And, uh, and I was like, oh, we won another one. You know, wh wh where, where's the, that big feeling, you know? Um, and it took me a few weeks of kind of soul searching to figure out what that was about. But uh, it turned out that um, winning the race per se was not exactly the most important thing. Mm. Instead, there were things like uh, the relationships that you built and the, and the people things that happened that were uh, as important and sometimes for some people more important than the actual finishing first. So uh, it changed our philosophy of how we coached. And now it was about uh, uh, helping these young, these, these boys turn into men, essentially helping them uh, uh, mature a bit and giving them some life, using little five to, to build some life lessons. And also to prove to each rider that went through that he was capable of more than he thought he could, was. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it was about uh, raising the level of individuals that came through the program as much as it was winning. So we, at that point, we looked at uh, the journey, all of the practices and all the work that went into it as, as kind of the, the race. Yeah. And, the ra and the actual race was sort of the graduation ceremony. It was the commencement. How do you get the riders to buy into that part? Because everyone wants the trophy. Everything's more fun when you win. How do you really get to buy the riders to buy into the journey part? Well, it wasn't something that, um, that we had to get them to buy into. It was, it was a change in the way we coached. Mm -hmm. And so it was challenging an individual who thought he could ride 20 laps to have him get to the point where he, he knew he could ride 30 laps. Uh, it was challenging individuals to take that step further, you know, and uh, 
when the whole team's watching you and, and today, you know, you give them this assignment today, you're going to do, you're going to ride a 50 lap set, uh, you know, and you have to maintain with the pack or, or ahead of the pack, whatever, but not behind the pack. Mm -hmm. um, and with the whole team there sort of prodding the guy on and the adrenaline's flowing and so forth, the guy accomplishes that, right? And it's not something he thought he could accomplish before. So it, it takes him up a level. And it, it, it was just really a difference in the way we coached, not, not in anything we asked them to buy into. But they, they got the message over time for sure. Uh, going into the 74 race, you already mentioned it. You guys won that race again. Uh, you, you get Gary Ryberard joins the team. Yes. Um, Mike Alexander joins the team. Yes. It's a mystery whether Wayne's going to ride or not that year. Like, like how does that play out coming into race day? In that 74 uh, year? So 74 was uh, like Wayne's second year, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the, the most important things were that um, riders knew that they had to step up if he didn't ride. That was one thing. Um, uh, Mike Alexander, for instance, had just begun riding a bicycle, <laughs> much less racing. And uh, one of the things that he learned he could do, he was prompted on one of the rides, hey, you got to sit the wheel, you know, you don't, don't lose the wheel no matter what. And, uh, and he took that to heart and not instantly, but over a period of a short time, he made himself do that. So that's an example of a rider getting challenged. And in this case, not by coaches, but other riders mm -hmm. to, to, to step up to the next level. Um, and that was a big deal to him. You know, uh, hey, I sat with the pack the whole day today. I didn't drop off, you know. Uh, so there were these daily challenges. And um, and when when each each time someone knew that they had gotten to the next level, it was like a big deal. So we had a lot of that going on. Um, but um, but yeah, guys stepped up big time. Uh, Gary. Uh, improved a lot that season. Um, obviously I just mentioned Mike Alexander did, uh, others as well. It was, it was, uh, um, it was a good year for us. Mm -hmm. And, and then Wayne decided to ride. When, when did he decide to ride or did you guys know all along he was going to ride and just kept it? Safe? Um, I, I, that year, I, I think, um, not all along, but uh, but pretty early on, I we, we felt he was going to ride, and I wasn't on campus that year. Steve was. Steve came back to do his masters, um, and I had graduated, so I was off working, um, and um, and so Steve sort of was the day to day coach for the first time, and and where I had had that role in previous years. Mm -hmm. uh, but I came, you know, the night before the race, we always put our heads together as coaches and sort of um, worked out sort of final details of the race uh, after we put the team to bed. And, uh, and we, we did scenarios for that race until about three or four in the morning. And every one of those scenarios, we came out winning by two laps. Mm. And uh, 
that was we kept saying yeah that's not possible let's let's do this again you know <laughs> and finally by about three or four it, we said well we need to get some sleep let's go to bed if if we only went by one lap that's not the worst thing in the world <laughs> so and sure enough we went by two laps the following day <laughs> um uh following that race iusf changes the rule that kind of eliminates guys like wayne who've got previous race experience yeah so uh wayne's no longer eligible yep um, and then so does that take the wind out of the steel the wind out of the sails for the team or do you guys just keep pushing on because you developed this program now well even before they made the rules there was a lot of discussion about uh that and wayne had said you know i don't want to ride next year it's just not fair and so that was the part, even before the rules changed, that took the wind out of our sails in, in that respect. But, uh, but by now we had a pretty well-established program. It wasn't just about a single rider in general. I mean, clearly Wang was a rider that, that uh, you know, uh, created a lot of uh, the success for us in that time. But, um, we now had a program we had, we had, as I mentioned before, we had an organization and we had riders that were interested in coming in and riding. Um, and so we just had to look sort of next man up. What does next few years look like we're on race day with Rybar and uh, is Greg, when is, and Greg Sions joins at some point, I forget when. Yeah, well, we, you know, we, lo we lost that first race after Wayne left, but then we won the next two. Okay, as I recall, and uh, the one we lost, I'm pretty sure that was uh, to the Fijis. Um, and um, mm -hmm. the following year, you know, um, there wasn't a very strong field, uh, other than you know, the Fijis and us were pretty much the strongest two teams, and so we just you know focused, focused on them. We thought we understood what their strategy was going to be, and we just you know took it to him is that is that the race where uh, rybar doesn't come off until the fiji's exchange yes he's up riding like on the 60 lap first set or something they um jay allard uh, wrote a 50 lap set and we wrote a 51 lap set uh, <laughs> alexander wrote a 51 lap set and and i told him before he got on the bike i said um you know you know what your job is it's to ride one more lap than they do uh, and, uh, I'm going to be yelling stuff out from the pit, ignore everything I say, because I've, I've watched Allard. He looks at our pit more, more than our riders do. <laughs> right. So, uh, I'm going to be saying things for his benefit, not yours, you know, so you focus on what your job is and just ignore everything I have to say. And about, uh, about 45 laps into the race, uh, I yell out, okay, Gary, give me a, a good, uh, give me another 20 good laps. <laughs> and Ellert's face just, you know, just sank, right? He, he obviously was hoping I was going to be yelling, bring it in. And uh, so he hung in there until uh, uh, lap 50, but he brought it in on lap 50. And, um, and, and we, we were pretty certain that that was kind of blowing their strategy. So when did you guys start to develop that sort of mental trickery or that, 
that mental psychology work? Uh, it started about Eddie's junior or senior year uh, when we saw when other riders would challenge Eddie at the track. And uh, it was pretty clear that they were trying to mentally defeat him on the on the uh, in practice before the race ever occurred. And so we learned it from some of those riders, you know, um, we, at some point we decided that was something we should probably be doing because it seemed to be effective for some, some people. Do you have any good examples of things you, <laughs> I mean, I, I heard an example once where somebody wore like a, a boot on their foot on the school bus, uh, the campus bus. And within minutes, the rumor had spread all around campus that, uh, it might've been Bill Brisman had broken his foot or something. Yeah, it was before Bill's days, but, uh, but yeah, we, uh, we did one of those. We, we were having some problems with uh, some of the information was getting leaked out of our meetings. Uh, and, and so we had this, we, we put some, we put out some disinformation and that was one example of the disinformation that uh, one of our good riders had a broken leg and, and wasn't going to be able to ride. And this was like two weeks before the race or so. So people got all excited and everything. And um, then he shows up race day, you know, raring to go, uh, which is another sort of that takes them down at that, that point. So, yeah, we got involved in, this, in a fair amount of that. Uh, I, I used to tell the guys that uh, uh, we had to have the best preparation, and there were three parts of preparation. Uh, one was physical, uh, which was the part that everybody was pretty tuned into. Mm -hmm. Another was intellectual, to know what to do. Uh, and uh, the third was psychological. Uh, and the psychology was uh, related to several things. One is if you had a wreck, if you, if you were involved in a wreck, uh, you had to know that that wasn't the end of the world, that you were going to get back and, and get back in this race and, and win it. And, and uh, unless that wreck occurred on the last lap, there was going to be that opportunity. <laughs> uh, so it was mental uh, psychological preparation for our guys. But later on, we got into sort of a little bit of psychological preparation for our opponents as well. Well. What did the physical prep look like? Were the Delta Chi train uh, as hard or harder than other teams? Like what separated them in that arena? All of those teams in those early days had at least one rider that was a very good rider. Eddie in those first four years, Wayne later. And it made no sense to either of those guys to train less hard than they normally would uh, to maintain their level, right? Right. And the rest of the teams had to keep, rest of the riders had to keep up with them, essentially. So uh, I pretty much ignored the physical side. First of all, Eddie knew more about it than I did in those early days. Wayne knew more about it than I did in the next generation. And um, pretty much tradition took over from there. So I didn't get too involved in the physical preparation as long as we had somebody on the team that was a driver that was going to keep, keep that pace moving out on the roads gotcha. um, and we kind of let the riders do their own thing out on the roads the night before we would have each day we would have a meeting and we would ask you know the riders what what they felt 
what kind of training they felt they needed tomorrow. And it would, oh, we need a hard workout. We need to go long, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had our hard workout yesterday. Let's do some long, slow distance recovery ride kind of thing. So they would call what their ride was going to be. And I would just note it down in the in the notebook and hold them to that because sometimes they would come to me and say, oh, you know, yesterday we said we were going to go hard today. We really don't feel like that. And blah, blah, blah. So we're thinking we're going to change to such and such. And I'd say, no, we made that decision in the meeting last night. You're doing what you said you were going to do. <laughs> but the, those were rare moments. But uh, but but the uh, pretty much we let them do their own thing on the rides when it came. It, in, in those days, almost everybody, the, the good teams at least, would go out for an hour or two ride on the roads and then come to the track. And everybody showed up at the track. And so uh, you, would, you would show up at the track and, and you'd already put in, you know, uh, some, some miles on the road. And then you, then you did your track work. And the track work was typically skills work, you know, doing, getting the exchanges right. Um, making sure we could, uh, we would learn what the other teams could do and would do in certain situations. And, and so the track time was not so much about uh, physicality, but, but it was about, uh, you know, intellectual uh, stuff and, and uh, psychological stuff, brain work. Yeah. Uh, To go back to 76 race, um, uh, Rybar and Mark Dayton. Mark Dayton finishes that race. Wins yes. That race. His, yes. Brother, his brother had ridden for Delta Chi before that. Yes. And then Mark joins the team. And Mark's a pretty high level rider himself. Well, Mark's thing was that he could spin the pedals faster than anyone. Well, he's a little guy. Thin he's little a guy. little skinny guy. <laughs> and he can do 200 RPMs on the pedals. We, we, we clocked that on, on, you know, we filmed him film in those days, not video. <laughs> it was a long time ago, but he could do 200 RPMs on the pedals. And, uh, you know, everybody, nobody really knew Mark. Uh, he was coming in kind of new. Uh, everybody thought Gary would be sprinting. And of course, Gary did that first 50 lap set. Uh, and, uh, we rode a good hard race and, uh, and we decided, you know, we had two guys that could win the sprint, either Gary or, or Mark. But uh, given the amount of laps we were having uh, Gary do, we thought, yeah, let's put Mark on when he's, you know, he's going to be a lot fresher than Gary. And we'll put Mark on for the for the finish. And he did fine. Mm-hmm. Another victory. Yep. It's starting to get old by now, probably, huh? Getting bored of it. <laughs> no, it's it's. Uh, it wasn't at all boring, but it was this new set of challenges of how can you how can you get these riders to perform way better than they thought they could, and how can you show them new and innovative ways to win? Because one of the things we learned early on was you can't win the same way, mm-hmm. you know, year after year because other teams figure out what you're doing and they they so uh, it was always okay. What talent do we have and how are we going to use this to its best advantage and how are we going to do it in some new and unique way? Did you notice other teams trying to copy your style or, or take Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, in, uh, in Eddie's senior year, uh, we brought uh, three trainer bikes to the pit so that our guys could keep, you know, stay warm and not, not cramp up and so forth. 
uh, and always be ready to ride. And nobody else on the stadium had uh, that. There, there were mattresses and there were folding chairs and things like that, that the riders not in the race were, were using. Uh, within two years, pretty much every team out there had uh, uh, trainers or rollers or, you know, equivalent uh, where they had, you know, the, the riders that weren't on the bike were, were riding. And the other thing, of course, we did was we faced those uh, towards the track so that the guys were focused on, where, you know, they could sit there and spin a little bit and watch what was going on. Mm-hmm. And, and we also taught our riders that, you know, if they see something, don't assume that everybody else has seen it. Yell, you know, call it out so that everybody on your team knows, oh, there was a wreck in three or, you know, this or that happened. So we had, you know, lots of eyes on the track and people calling them out. Um, for instance, if I was trying to get somebody some water or something to eat or something like that, I might have my back to the, to the track for, a, you know, a few seconds or something. I might not see something, but if, if the guys yelled it out, boom, I spun around, I could see it quickly. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, there were a lot of little things like that, that we did, uh, that we worked really well together as a team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1977, let's go through these years here. Um, Rybar wins the sprint in 77. I should get my book out to remember (laughs) which years were which. So, so Rybar wins the sprint. That took some notes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, who was on the team that year? Rybar and who? I don't know the rest of that. Oh. Okay, so this was um, this. Oh, so this would have been another word. The second year that we won of two in a row, right? I think it was yeah, all, okay. all senior team because the next year. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All senior team. Yeah, Rybar wins the sprint. Uh, Seventy-eight is a fascinating year for me because you get an all rookie team. Uh, you get Bill Brisman, Al Williams. Uh, and Gutowski, I believe. And um, they don't do so well. They go into the race thinking they're hot shots and they got it all figured out. Yeah. Walk me through that and post-race. And I understand you guys had a meeting like the day after the race where you set the stage for these guys on how to win. Yeah. So uh, the, the week before the race, the guys were all telling us how they were all ready and they were going to win and all this stuff, you know. And I told Steve a day or two before the race, I, I don't think they have a sense yet of the level at which uh, the competition, you know, there's competition out there. And I don't think they have a sense yet of how hard this race is to win. And so uh, sure enough, we finished 10th, I think you said, and uh, um, the guys were pretty humbled by that. And we had a race, we had a meeting the next day. Um, and, um, y- you know, uh, in those days, the tradition, I guess, among coaches would be to yell at people and, you know, so on and so forth, but that was not our style at all. And so we said, okay, uh, you guys have tasted a race now. Now you know what it's about. And now you know that it takes a lot of effort to get to the place that you thought you were at uh, before the race. And today is the first uh, day of your next season. So uh, you have to decide what you're going to do differently and what you're going to do better to win the race next year. 
And that's pretty much about all that was said. There, there may have been a few other comments. I don't remember exactly, but, uh, but that was the notion. And these guys walked out of there all fired up, and they, you know they spent a lot of time thinking about you know how much harder they were going to train and things like that. And I remember on one occasion coming to the house. Uh, I think it was on a Friday night or something. Uh, it was dark outside. It was snowing. Uh, there was about an inch of snow on the ground, um, or maybe a little bit more on the streets. And uh, the guys were just coming back from a ride, <laughs> and they were all all dressed <laughs> up, you know, in their winter uh, uh, garb, and and uh, and they came in, and they were obviously tired, so they'd ridden hard. You know, uh, so I thought, oh yeah, this is a lot better. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think they got it. Yeah, they were they were getting it. Yep. And then uh, you know, little five legends are born from that moment. Yep. Right. Um, Seventy nine race. Uh, Ikai wins again. I saw it's Bill Brisman wins his first out of three. Yes. First three in a row. Yep. Um, the guys are getting it, uh, but Chris Katowski is ruled ineligible because of the cat one, cat two rule. Yep. That'd be frustrating for the team. I'm sure. You know, I didn't think much in terms of the team. It was uh, devastating for Chris who had gone through a lot of, uh, uh, tough times, let's say in his life outside of little five outside of racing and so forth. And, uh, um, to him, it was just more example of, of the injustices coming his way. I mean, he, he took it very personally. Um, and, uh, I can remember discussions with him and, and I, I told him and, and, you know, he felt it was very unfair. And I said, well, everyone, you know, has to answer to a higher authority. And uh, I said, uh, we, we need to look into this and do some research and find out, you know, who can overturn this. So we looked into the, the structure, uh, the corporate structure of, of foundation and so on and so forth. And, oh, they're really wasn't anybody they had to answer to. So we uh, prepared a lawsuit against the university um, and uh, delivered news of that, you know, to our, our attorney, you know, contacted the uh, university's attorney and told them that, you know, we were filing a lawsuit. And, um, and so, um, they, the, the attorney uh, came to one of the writers council's meetings and, uh, and they described how maybe this wasn't fair and they were gonna let uh, writers council vote on whether he was gonna be eligible or not. Writers council voted that he wasn't gonna be eligible. Mm. So we lost that round. Uh, I conveyed that back to our attorney who talked to their attorney again <laughs> and uh, and so uh, the attorney and Armstrong sort of overruled that vote uh, two days later, and um, and he was eligible. Mm. And it was uh, 
you know, there was there were always politics involved in Little Five and Foundation, uh, but mostly it was politics around, you know, you're a little house and nobody, you know, we're not going to get a lot of donations from your house. So we want one of the big houses to win. <laughs> it's kind of the underlying philosophy, I think. I'm sure. Uh, that, but, did you feel that kind of, you felt that attitude as you guys were getting better at Little Five and yeah, for sure. But, but you know, it abated uh, each year that we did well, I think a little, you know, it, it receded a little bit each year. And we, we gained, once we did the lawsuit thing, I think we gained the respect uh, of the organization to where they said, okay, we're going to try and, you know, keep this thing more on the, on the up and up. Mm -hmm. But uh but yeah, over uh, you know, when, if you win enough races, you gain the respect. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and then in 1980, Chris gets to come back. Chris Katowski. Yes. He gets to come back. Yes. And he gets that victory with his team they've been training with. Yeah. Um, and they win. Uh, they win by two laps. I've got written down here. <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, so the team's on a roll again. Yeah, we got Teams a, on a roll again, but more importantly, um, you know, Chris, um, I, I talked about how I felt after various races earlier, and and this was a race where, you know, we were sort of um, again running out to the infield victory kind of thing, victory celebration, and Chris, I saw was just sitting on a step still by the by the pit wall. Um, and, uh, and I went over to him and we had a talk and this was like the first thing that had gone right in his life in two or three years of tough times. And he was overwhelmed by that. And, uh, it was to me a great example of, of showing, you know, demonstrating or having him demonstrate that, uh, things were not as bad in his life as, as they looked. There was light at the end of the tunnel. So uh, that was a, a magic moment. Um, so, yeah, so now we're back on a roll. Sorry for that interjection. Yeah. Well, you know, Chris was my coach when I started riding Little Fire. Right, yeah. He carried that passion and enthusiasm uh, and really conveyed to us the opportunity that we had in front of us that, to use this bike race as a vehicle for that. And yeah yeah so i i didn't know some of that story so thanks for sharing that uh, 1980 is also the last race on the old stadium yes you know what was it like racing there during those times and that there was a running track that was outfitted to hold a bike race like, what was yeah. that like? well first of all the uh, turns were tighter and there was a curb on the inside so uh uh, if somebody moved you over into that curb and your pedal hit that curb, you were going down. There, what, do you, what do you mean by curb? Like explain that for me. Oh, um, well, like like you'd see the curb on a street. There was okay. a there was concrete layer that was about uh, yeah four or five inches that stuck wow. up, and that was the edge of the track. Okay. And so nowadays it's flattened, dished out, 
Mm -hmm. uh, so you can actually run into the drive, you know, ride into the infield on the new track, but you couldn't do that on the old track. You were going down if you got close to that curb. And so there were a lot more wrecks uh, on the old track. Um, the other difference was that I mentioned the turns were tighter mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and there was no banking. There's a slight banking on the new track. But anyway, uh, more than 90% of the riders couldn't pedal through the turns uh, flat out, riding flat out and pedal through the turns. They'd have to stop, you know, hesitate so they didn't hit their pedal uh, as they went through and then pick up uh, riding again after they got towards the straightaway. Um, so we always were able to teach our riders how to pedal through the turns. And we always rode in positions that kept us away from that curb. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a lot of other teams didn't do that, let's say, and wound up in wrecks and so forth that, uh, that we didn't. So those were the, the major differences in the track. And we, we were great at using those differences to our advantage. Um, yeah and and uh, better better than most at, at using those distance those uh, differences to our advantage but it, it sounds like one rider that could take the turns at speed could almost go faster than a pack that was unorganized definitely mm. definitely and and even on the last lap if you think about a sprint lap if your rider can can pedal all the way through those turns on the last lap he's going to cut two seconds off of that uh, last lap and if he's paired against a rider that doesn't know how to do that or isn't in a position to do that, you know, that's a two seconds is a big deal. So right. it helped us win a lot of races. Uh, uh, but the main thing about that, uh, that year is uh, we set like two or three records. The team was uh, very interested in setting some records that year because they knew that would last forever because uh, it would be tied to that track. Oh, yes. And so uh, I think uh, uh, I think in quals, uh, Mark Dayton rode the fastest lap. I mean, uh, Bill Brisman. Uh, Bill Brisman, yeah, rode the fastest lap. Uh, we 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 got fastest lap that year. We got uh, I don't know a bunch of records that that would never fall because of the change in the track. Do you remember what the lap time was for the fastest lap back on that track? About. I don't. I had um, I had pictures of what our quals lap was. I don't remember. Uh, I probably have pictures somewhere of what the fast lap is, but I don't recall. Um, but after the race, we were walking back to the house, and uh, um, uh, we got stopped by the the uh, president of the university who wanted to shake everybody's hand and, and congratulate us so forth. So it was, you know, that there was sort of extra uh, icing on the cake that year. Mm -hmm. Was the, were, were the, were the little five teams, the little five community sad to see the stadium go or were they like good riddance? Let's build a new one. What was the vibe like? Um, the vibe was something if not knowing because the construction hadn't started on the new track yet. Mm. And uh, what was interesting to us was that we got a hold of um, the blueprints for the track and started, you know, doing strategy about how we would adapt to this new track uh, months and months before anybody ever saw the track. So um, once again, sort of information or, or you know, um, 
it was, you know, it was helpful to us. I, I think I probably still have a copy of those blueprints wow. somewhere. Uh, but um, but to think about that there would be banking and, uh, you know, this, that, and the other uh, definitely changed the way we thought about the sprint at the end of the race. Yeah. And, so, uh, going into the 81 race, like what kind of things did you adjust for being on a new track? Um, with the with the turns being wider, so you can pedal through them easier. Yeah, it, it meant that everybody could pedal through the turns, uh, and so we didn't. That was an advantage that we lost, and um, the um, the dished out sort of in, inside curb uh, was, uh, or the lack of an inside curb was, uh, just meant there were going to be fewer wrecks. So in races on the old track, you might expect, you know, eight to 10 wrecks uh, during the race, we were going to see two or three. It was, so wrecks weren't going to be as big of a, a, a thing to, uh, to deal with. Does that mean you could sit back in a pack more? Or how did you use that? We, we didn't do that really, or maybe one position further back, but we still stayed towards the front of the pack. Um, it, it meant that the pack changed shape. Mm -hmm. uh, it meant people were riding a little further away from the curb for some reason, which opened up that little center pocket that you see today that some guys like to ride in. Right. Uh, but we didn't let our guys do that uh, because it wasn't, that wasn't a position that you could um, control the race from. And we were all about controlling the race in those days. Mm -hmm. We wanted to control the pace of the race. We wanted to control what, what happened and when it happened and all this stuff. So um, a lot of the things we, a lot of our philosophy about how to ride the race remained the same, at least during the first uh, few years. Now we made little adaptations as we went, but, uh, but yeah, that first, uh, you know, we had an experienced team going into that new track and we had plenty of chance to uh test that track out you know in practice and so forth so um a lot of stuff stayed the same did it feel i'm sure it felt different being in this whole new arena uh bigger space and like did it still feel like little five then once the race got started yeah it still felt like little five but you know it, it the biggest change was over the years you know the 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 start finish line was on the other side of the track at first and then moved to this side and so forth. Uh, so there, there were a lot of changes that took place uh, during that time frame. So it was, it was less about, um, yeah, I remember what we did last year. Let's do that this year and more about discovering new ways to, to win. Yeah. Um, did, uh, was there a consensus that taking a lap on a new track wasn't going to happen? So it was going to be a pack sprint. Maybe among some people and probably, probably among quite a few people, but uh, we did get laps on that, uh, on that new track. Um, and, um, but it, it was probably, it, it was definitely a little harder to get laps because of the, the fact that we didn't have the turns and the curves and the wrecks and all that stuff to take advantage of. Mm -hmm. And uh, Delta Chi wins the, for, wins the race on the new track for, again. Yep. Um, that's seven out of 10 years or something. That's a lot of victories. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, Bill Brisman's last year. What was like, yeah. 
what was it like to coach Billy B and see his progression? And you know, he's considered uh, one of the best writers ever in Little Fives now. Well, um, Bill was great to coach and work with and be with and so forth, and, and as was the whole team. You know, those guys had mostly, uh, within one or two exceptions, had ridden together for four years. And uh, uh, they had their own personalities. I mean, it was just a really fun team to work with. Um, you could tell from the, the way they came back their sophomore year and, and uh, won that race that uh, uh, they were going to be a force then for the next, you know, the next two years. So, uh, and they were, and, and, you know, those were days when we learned in the, in the early days to us, any other team that might be competition was our enemy. Uh, but we, we started, we, you know, the, that was a team, and even earlier than that, uh, where we got to be, we gained a lot more friends that were on other teams. Uh, initially, we didn't want our riders talking to any other teams because we didn't want anybody to pick up any of the the knowledge that we had from the race. Uh, but, uh, but, but over the years, we gained friends from other teams as well. So that was important in that time frame. But Bill was fun to fun to coach because after even after winning his first race i mean that, those guys knew the race really well now and so it was just um, it was it was just you know fine tune everything every year uh 82 um chris katowski comes back because he had missed that year but yep. he's got all, all rookie team yeah chris is training with some other teams he makes friends with Jim Mahaffey from five lots, yep. and uh, you're kind of raising the bar of the competition. Uh, it's a big stage, a lot of media there, it's a big race. Uh, and Chris doesn't win the sprint at the end, yeah. Mahaffey does, yeah. I'm happy, and that's got to be, I don't know, it's never, it's hard to lose, <laughs> it's hard to lose, but uh. That was a race that we felt we lost because they had spent time together. Because Chris essentially taught Mahaffey how to win that race, so whether he did it intentionally or not, and, and I, I'm sure he didn't do it intentionally. But um, that was it, it was to get to a point where. Um, you know, with a, with a year or two's perspective, you understand maybe what the reasons were a little better. Mm-hmm. And Mahaffey was just, a, you know, he was a guy with a lot of will and he had the will to win and he won it. God bless him. <laughs> uh, what's the feeling of the fraternity, the bike race or the bike team at this point? Like, are, is it still going strong? Is the fraternity just clicking off and things are working well. Well, there's starting to be some jealousy of the bike team, I think in that time frame, uh, or shortly thereafter. I don't remember exactly when that started, but, uh, I was hearing things that, Oh, we want to be more of a academic house or we want to be more of a social house or whatever, not just a bike house. And, uh, and my, you know, response was fine. If you want to take the academics up a level, you know, and, and overshadow the bike team, do it, you know, or, or other aspects. Mm-hmm. But 
too often they were saying, well, the bike team needs to not do as well or something, right? And I, I vehemently disagreed with that part as, you know, we need to keep the bike team doing its thing. You guys just step up your game in these other areas that you want to. Um, but uh, some friction developed over that time, as you're aware. And uh, at one point, uh, uh, and the house was having some other difficulties as well. So at one point, uh, they decided to, to kick out one of the riders. That happens in 84, but the, the year before that, in 83, the team fails to qualify. Yeah. Uh, which is um, a big sigh of relief probably around the campus. Yeah. <laughs> celebration that Delta Chi is maybe unraveling a little bit. Uh, and it turns out to be a big moment in the team's history. Yeah. And I wasn't around as much that year. Uh, I was living in California by then, uh, I believe, and uh, uh, involved in other things. And I didn't spend as much time with the team. And I was shocked to, to hear that they didn't qualify and, mm-hmm. and disappointed. Uh, but, you know, if you're doing little five, you have you run into these shocks and disappointments from time to time, at least if you do it long enough, you do. So yeah. uh, that was disappointing. But um, but then, as as we mentioned, you know, one of the guys got kicked out of the house, and and the other guy said, "Well, if he's going, I'm going." And uh, so I called Eddie Van guys to tell him the news that this, uh, the, you know, the the team was uh, thinking about leaving the house and forming an independent team. And he said, "Well, you know what? We have to call them, don't you?" And I said, "No, what?" He goes, "Cutters." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the cutter team was born mm-hmm. um and a lot of the delta chi uh, alumni kind of came over and supported that first cutter team definitely yeah it was we moved the whole program over um we gave the cutter team a, a big boost from the get-go and and they win their first race and yeah, which is like unheard of. Nobody, nobody goes out there and wins their first attempt, right? Yeah. But I think that was a, a, a sure part of the fact that the that the program went with it. And you talked about earlier about how your coaching style became one of uh, developing riders and turning helping boys become men. And that 84 team was full of guys that kind of, uh, elevated themselves, including Adam Giles and Randy Strong, yeah, Strong and Beck and Scott Sinise. Like they, they, they kind of needed that themselves as well. Yeah, and they kind of went into their training with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, a little bit of anger about uh, you know uh, what had happened to the team and so forth. So uh, they took a little extra adrenaline with them on those rides. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, they trained really hard and, and uh, uh, they were also, uh, I would see them coming back, you know, having been out in the snow or rain or something, having trained really hard on, in really bad weather. So you knew that they were, they had the idea. <laughs> uh, Randy, you, you gave me a, a bit of advice once after a little five that uh, cutters didn't win. And I was... Uh, kind of feeling kind of low bummed out and you just said something simple like you can't win them all and hearing that from you in that moment like it was the best thing i needed 
because of course we want to try to win them all. But sure, hear that from you was really helpful for me to help keep me going, knowing that uh, you know it's okay to not win because, like you said earlier, the the journey of it is much more important. And the more I can focus on that part and help these kids, uh, you know, the the more we will win. Actually, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and surely, I mean, you know, if you look at the records, cutters have done quite well <laughs> over the years. Yeah, uh, largely with with you at the helm. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> um, I was hooked. <laughs> I, I had some great mentors, you know, and then uh, as I first started coaching, I was just trying to copy what Adam and Chris taught me. And over the years, I you know, allowed myself to come through and find my own rhythm and routine. And a lot of it is what you say, like going back to the journey parts and making it fun and allowing the writers to be writers and let and trusting that they got it in them to do it. Mm -hmm. If, if if you were to pick some top memories of your little five, whether as a coach, as a spectator, like what were some of those moments for you? Well, I think, uh, you know, one of one of the top moments was when we won the first race, as I mentioned earlier, after trying for five years and not getting there and finally getting there. That was that was a big moment. And, and I also alluded to the second race, that was a big moment, not so much that it was exciting, but it, it changed our philosophy uh, a lot in a, in a very good direction. Mm -hmm. um, as a spectator, probably watching Noble Guyon win his first sprint mm -hmm. was pretty amazing because I was, uh, you know, convinced with a lap and a half to go that he was in a terrible position and, and was unlikely to win. And, and he did all the right things and pulled it out and with a little luck as well. But uh, that was just an awesome moment to watch Noble win that sprint. It was like, uh, you know, my heart was sinking with a lap and a half to go <laughs> and with a lap to go, it was like, yes, <laughs> yeah, that was a big one. <laughs> yeah. Um, how has little five changed since the, the DK dynasty to now, like, what do you see differently in, in little, I five think the five? biggest change, uh, that I see is that, you know, when we started out, we were able to take what was very much an amateur race and just take it up a level big time. Mm. Uh, a lot of the teams out there, when I first uh, became aware of Little Five, would train three, four months before the race. Um, that's not something te many teams think about today. You know, it's a year-round kind of effort. And we, we were the first team to really make it a year-round effort. Uh, that I know of. Now the five size may have been doing that, you know, the five size had won like six races before uh, we got started winning races. So they may have been doing that. And I'm sure they were in, in, you know, some of those, you know, 10 years before that sort of thing, when they had Dave blaze and so forth. But uh, most of the teams out there were, would train, you know, maybe three months going into the race. So there was the, the level of competition by the time we sort of stepped it up uh, a notch, a big notch, um, we didn't have the level of competition that exists today. I'm, I looked at uh, 
um, last year's race. And, uh, uh, and when, when we were racing those early days, probably, um, probably 90% of the teams would, would have done their first exchange by lap 11. Most of the team teams did their first exchange on lap 10. I looked at the race uh, this past year and most of the teams were still on the bike and ready to make their changes of their first exchange around lap 20. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there were, were, where we would have one or two or three or four, sometimes five teams that, that were, you know, at a level that we had to really believe that they were stiff competition. These days, um, looking at last year's race, there were, you know, uh, 10, 12 teams out there that were as competitive as we were in those old days. Uh, so the competition has increased. Um, nobody in the days when we started, except for probably Eddie Van Guys, knew what uh, the Tour de France was. Now probably everybody does, or nearly everybody out right. there, right? They they know about all these other races, and they know about the the levels of racing and so forth, and uh, and they train uh, in the winter time uh, with those things in mind, where. Most of the other teams didn't train that much in the winter time. So that's, that's a big, that's the biggest change. The track has changed and that, you know, changed the complexion of some things. Mm-hmm. But the biggest change to me is a lot more teams are doing much better preparation physically anyway. Yeah. Look, uh, I know little five has been a big part of your life. Like the, yes. Uh, the friendships and the experience. Like, can, can you imagine had your brother not had that idea, like what your life would be like? Um, I can I can expect that it would be good, but uh, I can't really imagine that. I mean, um, you know, the the uh, little even though I went through the business school, right? Little five taught me more more about management, and taught me more about how to build an organization, um, and. Uh, taught me how to work with people to get everybody moving in the right direction. Um, you know, um, little five riders are volunteers. You know, if you, if you yell at them or if you, you know, they can, they can decide just not to show up the next day. Right. So it doesn't make sense to be demanding uh, or at least it didn't make sense to me. Instead it would be, Hey, let's look at that. Uh, one little thing you did on the exchange there uh, that caused the rear end of the bike to, you know, move over into the other guy. Now, if you, you know, if you change that a little bit, it'll go a lot more smoothly. So we always focused on the details. We didn't, we didn't, uh, um, we didn't get down on the riders. We, we were there to lift them up, not, not uh, put them down. And that was, uh, that was a good lesson to learn throughout the rest of my life. but, um, but yeah, there were, there were tons of, I mean, clearly to me, when I left college, uh, I, I, you know, there were things I learned in classes, probably most of which I don't remember anymore, but there was, there was little five that, uh, you know, those lessons lasted a lifetime. What's it like for you now when you come back to the race and you're walking up through the, uh, into the grandstands? And what's it like to watch a race from the stands? And how, how do you watch a race? Well, um, 
what I see is, is very different than what most people see in the race, because over the years, you know, my brain has learned to tune 90% of it out and just focus on the things that are really important. You know, uh, um, I can pretty much always tell you who's in the lead of the race and I can, I can tell you how they got there. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the average person that's seeing their, seeing the race for their first or second time is experiencing the same thing I did when I saw the race my first or second time, right? It just looks like chaos out there. Um, so yeah, I, what I see is a lot different. That's, that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing is I can't watch the race or even the videos of it without getting super excited. Right. I mean, it's, it's uh, become uh, a part of, you know, so much a part of me that uh, it's exciting to watch the race, no matter if I haven't uh, had any involvement in it in, in this year or not in any particular year. Mm-hmm. It's also, uh, you know, there have been times when um, uh, coaches have asked me to uh, to help them with a particular situation they're having, and that's pretty gratifying to know that you can make a difference in just you know thirty minutes or an hour versus the many many hours that they put in over the time frame. So mm-hmm. that's fun too. You were at the race last year. Uh, you and Eddie were in the infield together watching the yes. race. I think at least I saw you. I saw you before the race on the infield. Just yep. having your buddy Eddie there again, that's got to be nice. Yeah, it was great. And Dave Blaze was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and some other of the old older riders were there. Um, it, it was super fun. But I can tell you that uh, it was great spending time with them. But I did. it's harder to watch the race from the infield than it is from the stands. You, you can't, you know, when you, when you watch it from the stands, you see it like a chessboard. And when you watch it from the infield, you, you're spinning around all the time trying to keep track of what's going on and you can keep track of what's going on, but it's a lot, a lot harder and you miss a lot of things. And that's why watching it on the video afterwards, I, I saw a lot of things that I missed during the race. Well, coach, I want to thank you for your time and thank you for all you put in little five and helping make it what it is today. And thanks for your, your mentorship with me and, uh, I, I really appreciate it. And and I want to thank your brother, Steve, for getting all this started and, and everything he put into it as well. Uh, so thank you both. And, and uh, I love you both. And I, I wouldn't be here without you. I know that. Well, it's, it's great to hear, Jim. But uh, I know that you've put a lot into it. And, and uh, I watched you, uh, you know, take the cutters to a successful route uh, and and spent my time thinking, yeah, I should just back off here and not, and just let things go. Cause they're going just fine now, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but it's, it's been good interacting over the years and uh, appreciate your thoughts and, and also the efforts that you put in the team. Yeah. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you in April or Great. maybe even sooner. <laughs> good. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Randy. That was great to catch up with you. I love you. I can't wait to see you again. And I can't wait for this year's Little 500.